You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Cases podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hi, everybody. My name is Ashley Elliott, and I am a rheumatology registrar based in Belfast. And today we are joined by Professor Carl Gaffney. Uh, Carl Gaffney is uh, the rheumatology research lead at Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital, and he is also the clinical lead for spondyloarthritis and paediatric transitional care. He is one of the founding members of BritSpa, and he is the chair-elect. And he is also on the leads on the BSR AXPA guideline group. So thank you so much today for joining us, Professor Gaffney. Yeah, nice to see you, Ash. Thank you very much for inviting me. What we're going to do today is just run through a case of um, a patient um, with a query of spondyloarthritis. And we're just going to get your pearls of wisdom and how you would approach a case like this if it um, came to your clinic. Um, so we have a 32-year-old female. She has had trouble for a long time with right hip pain, but this has got increasingly worse in recent times. She also now suffers from some buttock pain and left hip pain. She is a mother of two. Um, the children are aged 10 and 6, and she now comes to your clinic. So I just really wanted to tease out what you think when you're taking a history from a patient like this, what are really the key the salient points that you want to clarify at your clinic? And can you describe some of the things that you find in this case for this young lady? Of course, Ash. Yeah, that'd be a pleasure. So I think the first point to kind of recognize here is this girl has had symptoms for 50% of her life. So she's now 32 and she first presented to the medical profession when she was 16. So quite a long time previously. And I obviously didn't have the opportunity to see her then. And maybe if I had things might have been different or maybe they wouldn't have been. But um, although it's described that she had hip pain, Actually, when you take a history from her, this clearly wasn't hip pain. This was very much buttock pain. And I think that's one of the problems is that patients sometimes associate pain in the buttock with their hip. And sometimes healthcare professionals do as well. So we need to be very specific. You know, if it's true hip pathology, the pain's typically in the groin or on the anterior thigh. It's not in the buttock. Now, when you kind of take the history again in detail, it's very clear that she had very prominent inflammatory type symptoms. So the pain was worse if she was sedentary, certainly didn't improve with rest. It improved with activity, gentle activity, but she couldn't do any strenuous exercise. The pain was typically waking her during the night, during the second half of the night. And she very clearly describes alternating buttock pain. Although the pain was primarily on the right side, she was also experiencing some pain on the left side. She then also had prolonged early morning stiffness. She didn't have any radiation of pain. So there's a very clear inflammatory type history. The pain was of insidious onset. There was no history of preceding trauma. So there really weren't any mechanical features. But unfortunately, she got sidelined in the wrong direction. And she had a number of investigations done. She had an MRI scan of her hip, but not of her sacralic joints or her pelvis. And coincidentally, she had a labral tear. And in my experience, labral tears are very common on MRI. And as a consequence of that, she went on and had a hip injection, an intra-articular sort of diagnostic, shall we say, injection with local anesthetic and steroid, which didn't do anything. And ultimately, she ended up having a, a laparoscopy uh, because the query was, could this be gynecological in origin, even though she didn't have any other gynae symptoms? 
She found that so traumatic, the whole process, that she decided she didn't want any further follow-up or any further engagement with healthcare professionals at that stage. She felt quite traumatised by the whole thing. But actually, when you look back, and it's very easy to look back in hindsight, it clearly was an inflammatory type presentation with very typical inflammatory type buttock, lower spinal pain. So that's the kind of the first thing to say. And then, of course, if you go into the history a bit further, uh, in since then, she's had a number of ongoing issues with kind of fleeting myalgias and arthralgias. She's had a couple of visits to A&E with knee effusions. And then the reason she was referred to me was because of worsening buttock and supposed hip pain. But it clearly, again, it wasn't hip. It was inflammatory top spinal pain. And her new GP thought that this warranted some further investigation. But actually, the GP at the time thought the whole clinical picture was probably fibromyalgia as part of a chronic pain disorder. She had a high BMI. She was a quite stressed person, busy professional life, busy mum with two young children. So the, again, there was this whole query of was it a, a, a chronic pain presentation rather than being any sort of really identifiable organic pathology. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it really highlights some of the important things about not overcalling imaging results because we get a lot of MRI results with a lot of information sometimes. Um, yeah, actually, and do looking beyond the site where they're talking about pain, um, as you say, because then she develops peripheral arthritis, and um, if you put the picture together, um, you're gonna get a clearer idea, maybe that this is something else going on. Yeah. So when when um when you're taking a history from a patient, I guess you you've you've clearly laid out a really good way of the presenting complaint. Is there anything else again in other medical comorbidities or or other things that you want to know about in someone, especially when they're talking about lower back pain and hip pain? Yeah, I mean, you, as you say, you know, in people with uh, inflammatory type spinal pain, it, of those who are referred to secondary care, between 30 and 40% will ultimately have a diagnosis of spondyloarthritis. So, you know, you need to ask about peripheral musculoskeletal manifestations, extra musculoskeletal manifestations, family history. So it's very important to ask specifically about peripheral arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, um, uveitis, psoriasis, colitis, family history, etc., and about systemic type symptoms. And you need to be very clear with the patient what you mean by colitis, what you mean by uveitis, because the most people won't understand these terms and will you know misinterpret things. And so we need to be very careful and spell it out. And the same applies to when you take your history. Don't base your interpretation on other people's assessments always kind of start fresh yourself because often there are errors or there have been errors made along the way. But in fact, she didn't have any of that. She did have a family history of rheumatoid arthritis, which is probably a red herring again. Uh, and uh, But the reason it wasn't, really wasn't anything else in the history to point to spondyloarthritis per se. But I think there probably was enough in the story to raise your clinical suspicion and to prompt further investigations to decide whether or not she had SPA. Uh, yeah, great. And I think um, leading on then to examination in your clinic, I know how important examination is. I think sometimes busy clinics, we have great imaging now. I know. People sometimes opt to think, well, I'm going to get an MRI anyway. But yeah. you know, what in your experience, do you find anything particularly helpful? I mean, examination is so important, but in your experience? Sure. I mean, in, in her in her case, I mean, it was obviously the high BMI. 
she did have some fibromyalgic trigger points, um, as a lot of people do, particularly women who are have high BMI. She had very irritable hips. She didn't like her hips being examined, specifically hip rotation, and there was some restriction on the right-hand side. But there wasn't anything else specific to find. Her Schober's test was negative. Um, thoracic rotation was normal. Uh, and so there wasn't any other point. She didn't have any signs of dactylitis. And again, the patient won't tell you they've got dactylitis. You need to take their shoes and socks off and you know look at their toes as well as look at the fingers. And she didn't have any evidence of enthesitis clinically. So I did a very you know, quick assessment of enthesial tender points, Achilles, um, you know, knees, epicondyles, the usual places. Lovely. And in terms of then your next step in the investigations you'd order in the clinic, um, blood testing, imaging? Yeah, so we did you know, basic blood tests. Our CRP was 15, which is raised, but not very high. But again, remember in spondyl arthritis, only about 50% of people will have a raised CRP. And of course, again, you could have written that off to the fact she had a high BMI. She was 16 and a half stone. So, you know, it's on that sort of borderline level. She said she laid B27 negative. So that's kind of goes against the diagnosis of spondyl arthritis, but it obviously doesn't exclude it, especially in women. And we went ahead and did some imaging. So we did a full spa as an axial protocol with sacroiliac joints and limited views of the spine to include the hip joints. And that showed that she had evidence of very florid bilateral sacroiliitis. She also had multiple areas of emphasis within the pelvis, and she had a right hip effusion. So, you know, based upon the clinical presentation then and the imaging, the diagnosis wasn't in doubt. So it was a very, very clear cut uh, imaging. It wasn't, you know, a few white spots on the scan. This was florid sacroiliitis uh, evident on, on stir imaging with some structural changes in both sacral electrons on the T1 imaging. So again, I think it's a couple of important points here. It's very important you do the right imaging, you do the right protocol, and you review the scans personally, and maybe with one of your MSK radiology team, if in doubt. So don't always take reports on face value. It needs to be interpreted in the clinical context. And as you say, you don't make a diagnosis on imaging. As you make a diagnosis as, 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 as an, an expert based upon the clinical presentation, the laboratory testing investigations and, and using and your clinical judgment. So it's expert um, decision rather than applying classification criteria. Absolutely. And then, so we've talked about this patient having symptoms really from quite young. And one of the questions I have is about the key differences that you find in your clinical practice in someone who has a juvenile, Emphasitis related arthritis yeah. disease versus someone who's got adult spa. Yeah. Is it simply just a spectrum and divided by age, or is there key difference? I think the thing about emphasitis related arthritis and the evolution to uh, juvenile spa is a very sort of unclear area. There's very little in the way of epidemiology studies looking at an uh, inception cohort and looking at the time changes so but it's very clear that this girl was 16 so she was on the borderline of sort of juvenile we usually use arbitrarily cut off 16 and adult but typically with juvenile onset spa there's much more peripheral joint involvement so typically it's boys they present with peripheral arthritis usually hind foot um ankle knee or hip and they're typically hlab 27 positive it's less common in girls 
And again, it's unusual to be B27 negative, as opposed to adult disease where you get much more spinal involvement um, with spinal changes on, on imaging and much more positive axial metrology, higher BASDI scores, higher spinal pain phases, et cetera. So I think juvenile onset peripheral, uh, adult onset uh, spinal predominantly, plus in the juvenile group, it's very much large joint, lower limb, asymmetrical presentation, usually boys, usually B27 positive. But I think there's two things here. There's the, the juvenile stroke adult differentiation, but there's also the issues around women here, ASH, and delayed diagnosis. For AXPA, we know that the delay is between five and 10 years, but for women, it's even longer. And there's lots of reasons why women have a longer delay. I think it's the kind of misconception that women don't get AXPA, but that's not true. It's roughly a 50-50 split uh, based upon data from epidemiology studies and, and systematic reviews. Women present with more peripheral disease, with more chronic widespread pain. They're more likely to be HLA-B27 negative. They often have a higher symptom burden. So often the diagnosis is, is missed in women and, and they're mislabeled as having chronic pain disorders and fibromyalgia. So I think we need to be careful. We know that fibromyalgia coexists with about 20% of people with AXPA. And I'm not saying all AXPA and women is fibromyalgia. Mm. Sorry, all women with fibromyalgia have AXPA, not for a second, but as a proportion of them do. So I think in clinic, always keep AXPA in the back of my, your mind in a, in, a, in a woman with fibromyalgia. So going on then to treatment, your treatment ladder for a patient presenting like this, what, what, what would it look like? Well, what we did initially was around obviously education around the disease, the diagnosis, the, the treatment. I mean, she was quite emotional initially. I think there was a huge sense of relief that she had a diagnosis and that she first felt she was kind of being believed. Um, and then we obviously educated her around the disease. That created a lot of anxiety because even nowadays, if you type into Dr. Google, AS or AXPA, you'll come up with some fairly awful looking images that really don't represent the modern um, phenotype with newer therapies. So um, we referred her to NAS and she got a lot of support through our local group, plus also via some of the online educational sessions that NAS offer. We started her on toricoxib as a, as a long-acting anti-inflammatory initially, and we arranged to aspirate and inject her hip because that was her most symptomatic area. And in fact, initially, she did very well with that. We tried to motivate her to exercise, lose weight, lifestyle changes, et cetera. And that didn't really prove that successful, unfortunately. But after about three to four months, it was clear that she had kind of secondary loss of efficacy to the atorococcib. And then we escalated her to uh, targeted uh, therapy with atalimumab. She's been on that about a year now, and, and she's doing wonderfully. It's completely turned her life around. I mean, she's such a happy, bubbly, energetic, you know, person now who's really experiencing minimal if any pain she can play with her kids she's not struggling with her job she's even lost about a stone and a half already so that's great so she's kind of motivated to to, to be well and to take some control of her life so it's, it's really rewarding to see the difference uh, that treatment's made and some of the treatment options now in just in spondyloarthropathy in general it's an interesting area for instance some of the differential responses for patients say with psoriatic versus yeah 
respond? I mean, what's your feelings on some of that just as a sidestep? You know, well, I think patients with axial disease respond extremely well to targeted therapies. And I think if you have a patient in whom you've got a confident diagnosis, um, you can almost guarantee they're going to respond to their first targeted therapy. And our first choice treatment is a biosimilar TNF inhibitor. You know, adalimumab is usually the first choice in our unit because it's the most cost effective and it's got efficacy across the full spectrum, you know, for peripheral musculoskeletal manifestations and for extra musculoskeletal manifestations. So it kind of ticks, ticks all the boxes. But again, we have got a number of options available. We've we, in it, we've got five TNF inhibitors. We've got two IL-17 inhibitors. We're soon to have a third. And we've got JAK inhibitors, uh, two which are currently licensed in the in the UK. So, you know, we've got a, a range of opportunities, but not the same range that you've got in PSA and RA, because there are many more molecules, different uh, mechanisms of actions. But I think we've got as probably almost as much as we need for AXPA because the response rates are so good. And I think if a patient's had a primary non-response, in my experience, it's usually because the diagnosis is wrong or the pain is due to something else. Of course, there are secondary non-responders waning efficacy, and we sometimes have to switch patients or move them down the pathway. But, you know, we we have a number of choices available, and it's very satisfying to treat this group of patients because, by and large, they do very well. But it's not just all about the drugs, Ash, as well. It's all about, you know, lifestyle, education, diet, exercise, stopping smoking is really important, you know, those sort of things, which we sometimes take a bit for granted, but it's something we really need to emphasize with our patients at every visit. Yeah, that's definitely something that has evolved. And as a trainee, you're always focused on don't get it wrong, make sure you got the right diagnosis. There's lots of treatments, but actually, as you go on, what you realize for the patient is those things are actually so much more important, especially feeling yeah. part of the community and getting those education resources can be hugely helpful for them and their quality of life. The, Absolutely. The other thing that I always um, find, I, I think I struggle a little bit more as a junior trainee, which is something I, I think I've Kind of worked out is sometimes when you get imaging data MRI results and you're and there's it's the changes on the MRI are quite subtle. Yeah, yeah. There's a question over whether the, the diagnosis is 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 right. Yeah. And you're sort of hemming and hang, but then you're you're stepping back and looking at the patient and thinking actually inflammatory markers are normal. MRI is actually reassuring in all the other sites. Yeah. So what you can say to the patient is when you're really struggling with that is saying, actually, a lot of the markers here suggest even if there is, I don't think you do have axbone, but even if you yeah. do have it, you have very, very low risk of progressing to. A yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, think that's, you know, I feel what's your feeling on that? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the, the in terms of radiographic progression and, you know, disease progression, it's most it's men who are B27 positive who've got florid changes on MRI. They're the ones who do badly and people who smoke. But, you know, when I started my career in rheumatology, it was 30 years ago, we obviously only had plain x-rays. So we had a lot of patients who we thought probably had AS, as we called it then, but whose x-rays were inconclusive or unremarkable. I'd often love to like to go back now and just revisit that group and see where they've come to. I'm sure most of them have progressed to radiographic disease or, or AS as we know it now because we didn't have any other imaging. We used to use isotope bone scans, but even those weren't great. But uh, it's all changed now. So we've clearly be able to, to diagnose AXPA supported by imaging. But then there is, as you say, this uncertain group that are still there and they are the borderline sort of people with maybe inflammatory type back pain they might even be B27 positive or negative, and they've got this equivocal MRI. What do you do? 
Well, I think if, you know, it's your clinical judgment is number one. If you're in doubt, don't label the patient incorrectly. It's fair to say to a patient, I don't know. You might have, but we can't say for certain. You might want to reconsider repeating the scan probably three to six months later on. The likelihood of a patient going from a negative to a positive scan with a high clinical suspicion is about 20%. So it's definitely worthwhile repeating. But I see more people go from a kind of a borderline to a negative than I see going from a borderline to a positive. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why people have uh, borderline scans in the healthy, normal population. It's mm -hmm. very common but also women postpartum, people who've done strenuous exercise, et cetera. So, you know, just be aware of these subtle abnormalities. Don't overinterpret them. That's the danger, you know, and, and it's, it's, it, we're all human and it's, it's completely acceptable to say that you don't know, or it's unclear and rather than just giving a patient the wrong label. Brilliant. So in, in summary, is there anything uh, else, uh, Carl, that you'd want to get across to the audience just about axials? Well, I think as, as somebody who's really a big proponent of driving down the delay to diagnosis, I think it's as rheumatologists, we have a key role to educate our colleagues in primary care, not just general practitioners, but the broader AHP community physiotherapists, osteopaths, chiropractors, because a lot of patients with spinal pain don't get seen by GPs anymore. Mm. And educate them around the kind of key clinical characteristics of spondyloarthritis, helping them to understand the difference between inflammatory type pain and mechanical pain. Also educating our colleagues in secondary care in gastroderm, rheumatology, um, ophthalmology, and creating some referral pathways so these patients can come through to rheumatology more easily, making sure that our imaging protocols are correct, making sure we have a forum to discuss our imaging with our MSK radiology colleagues. Be really careful about the scans that have been outsourced for reporting because we never really know who's reporting them or what their level of skills or experiences. And then working together as a team to kind of, you know, make the best judgment for, and, and decisions for, for our patients. That's brilliant. Um, Carl, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. That's been really, really, really helpful. A pleasure, Ash. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Cases, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.